It's All Relative is here again with the sixth Rootier episode. I hope everyone had a great holiday. Hey, my non-Christian listeners, that means you too. You don't have to be Christian or Western to enjoy the season. I mean, I do. When I was in the UK, the only people that worked over the holidays were the Sikhs. I appreciate the need to make money, but everyone needs a break sometime, Sahibwala. Don't work too hard. Marilyn Monroe will get you in the true crime mood, and I will see you on the other side. Running wild, lost control. Running wild, mighty bold. Feeling gay, reckless too. Can't remind all the time, never blue. Always going, don't know where. Always showing, I don't care. Don't love nobody. It's not worthwhile. All alone. Running wild. Today, we're going to talk about the main proofs that convicted Darley Routier of murdering her sons. Darley met Darren when Darley's mother, also called Darley, was working at a Western Sizzler in Lubbock. Darley was 15 years old and had already started working at McDonald's to pay her way in the world. Right there, you have a good indication of the financial and social background of both Darley and Darren. These two did not come from money. People got married young and tended to stay together. When Darley met Darren, they almost instantly became a couple. They were married when she turned 18. Even a cursory glance at the routiers tells you that Darren and Darley weren't just poor. The routiers were not classy people. Look up Lubbock, Texas stereotypes if you need a brief rundown. If stereotypes were always correct, the routiers would have ended up in a leaky trailer with a broke-ass truck, not sure where the grocery money was going to come from this month. But stereotypes are not always correct. In fact, they often are not correct. And in the case of the routiers, Darley and Darren ended up with a whole lot of cash and a hurry to get to spending it. Darren caught the tail end of the computer bubble that held hands with the internet bubble. If you're going to be on the internet, or if you're going to have online business, you're going to have to have a powerful and fast computer. Darren tested motherboards, and the money from that business got them a pricey house in an up-and-coming Dallas neighborhood called Rollette. A boat? A working fountain on the front lawn, all the toys and gadgets the children could want to play with, and fancy island vacations on a fairly regular basis. But it was a bit like trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Apparently, some of the locals thought of the routiers as their very own Beverly hillbillies. And if I have to explain that reference, you've completely missed the point. I'm not trying to be insulting. Eccentricity makes things interesting. But in the case of the routiers, eccentricity backfired. Darren had a mullet, well after mullets had begun going out of style. At one time or another, so did Devin and Damon. Had a mullet, that is, just like their dad. Darley, a natural dark brunette, had her hair bleached as platinum as Marilyn Monroe, and she often wore it in a style which would have needed a whole bottle of Aquanet to keep it in place. Both of Darley's hands were regularly covered in flashy and expensive rings, 
and Darren had convinced her to get a several thousand dollar boob job, giving her a chest worthy of Dolly Parton. And when I say convinced, I don't mean forced. Darley was proud of her body. The Routier house was covered in white flooring, like not just the linoleum, the carpets were all white. The kitchen cabinets were a very light, ever so slightly off-white whitewash. It was the kind of place you expect to have mirrored doors on the closets and black laminate furniture. The furniture, however, was all heavy Chippendale wannabes. Damon and Devon were often out playing in the street unsupervised, and the neighbors claimed that Darley could be heard, at times, shrieking at them like a fishwife. This is not how good parents operate, said many of the neighbors after the fact. Should you doubt my depiction or write it off as an exaggeration, listen up. Well, I think it, it says that there was no intruder, period. It's a lie, and you know it. Do I have to interview in front of this trailer trash over here? I don't even start. And that was the Dallas County First Assistant District Attorney, Norm Kinney, interviewing on camera at the time of the trial. It is Darley's mother who he calls trailer trash. Before the police began processing the scene, they called a consultant named James Cron. According to one source, Cron was actually called in by the 911 operator. In any event, Cron was with the Rowlett Department as they did a walkthrough to determine the best way to investigate the crime scene. After the walkthrough, Cron had developed the feeling that there had been no intruder. This conclusion gets a lot of people's dander up in the Darleyverse. However, after all my research, I would have to say that Cron's assessment is a fair one. And to his credit, he does say that it was a preliminary assessment and it wasn't due to just one thing, but everything altogether. And Cron had something like 50 years on him as an investigator, specifically in forensics and crime scene analysis. The Rowlett Police Department had very little experience in comparison. Until 1971, Rowlett was a tiny town that was lucky enough to be on the main route connecting both sides of the country, the Bankhead Highway. But in 1971, the dam creating Lake Ray Hubbard was completed, and people found a reason to settle by this new oasis in the desert. By 1996, Rowlett was on the cusp of being considered a suburb of Dallas, but not quite there yet. Crime was generally limited to petty theft and breaking up bar fights. Prior to the attacks at the Routier's home, the Rowlett Police Department had only investigated one murder, like in its history. Now, inexperience does not necessarily mean these guys are the Keystone Cops, but I can see why they would want someone with experience to be there to lend an ear. Unfortunately, no one processed the crime scene to figure out what had actually happened. It was processed, don't get me wrong. But what Cron's initial assessment does is place a target on Darley's back, and all data collection went to proving her guilt, not figuring out who did it. Why Darley and not Darren? I'm not completely sure. The police say that the physical evidence confirms that he was upstairs and asleep when the murders occurred. But having looked at the evidence, I'm not exactly sure what they mean. It is true that his blood was not found on the main floor of the home, but all that proves is that he did not bleed there, not that he wasn't there. And Darren was given some flack for the comments he made to Detective Patterson at the hospital. Darren comes up to me, and, and this is the first thing he says. He talks about how big his uh, wife's breasts are. He talks about how pretty his wife is. He talks about that this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in the city of Rylette. 
uh, he doesn't ask me about his children. So I just found his actions to be a little strange. And that was Jimmy Patterson talking about Darren on True CSI Season 1, Episode 4. The first point against Darley is that she supposedly slept through the attack. The second, yet closely connected point, is her quote-unquote changing story of what happened. Going off Kron's impression that it was an inside job, those two points make the cops turn their heads toward Darley. Darley had been sleeping in the Roman room for about a week because she hadn't been sleeping well next to the baby. Detractors say there's no way she is such a light sleeper that the baby noises would keep her up, and yet she sleeps through her boys being stabbed. And I understand the suspicion. But my first thought here was, look, when you're a mom, your mom senses are turned on. Unless you're one of my nieces and then your genetic switch for this apparently never got turned on, it's broken. You know Rosemary's baby? She could sleep through the chorus of Rosemary's triplets crying. Ira Levin, people? Mia Farrow? No? Jesus, look that up. Getting to what all this means, for those of you who do not have children, is that any noise from a baby can wake you out of a dead sleep. It's not an exact science, but the sensor tends to be tuned into baby noises. Other noises are a complete crapshoot. There's a high probability that you will sleep through quite a bit. That's not baby related. Darley didn't have any depressant drugs in her system. No Z drugs, no benzos, no Benadryl. But if she had been given something like chloroform or ether, not only would it not have been part of the standard testing, it would have been out of her system before they could have run tests. Anyway, if you were the intruder, why would you chloroform an already sleeping woman? Well, to make sure she stayed that way. Now, this may be a complete fantasy on my part, and there really is no way to know at this point if Darley was drugged with an inhalant or not, but there is at least one FBI agent working on Darley's appeal case that thinks it's probable. It would explain why she slept through the boys being attacked and why her memories of the event are hit and miss. Additionally, standard talk screens tend to look for the usual suspects, things that investigators tend to find in common use at the time the test is given. The term time is loosely used. Remember, in the case of Jeffrey McDonald, no one tested for amphetamines because they were not considered dangerous drugs in 1969. But conversely, Darley is said to only have amphetamines in her system. The diet drug Fenfen, which is taken off the market very soon after Darley ended up in prison. Talk screens tend to be a bit behind the times. Politics, culture, science, powerful drug lobbies can and often do have a hand in deciding what is in common use and what is considered harmful. A drug like Rohypnol would have made it to a talk screen in the 1990s, but I'm willing to bet money that GHB was not on there. In the 1990s, the public was up on the usage of roofies as a date rape drug, but no one had heard of GHB. There were definitely drugs she could have been doped with that we will never know about because they weren't screened for at the time. There is also a potential link to Fenfen that, as far as I'm aware, was never looked at at all. The host of Behind Criminal Minds' YouTube channel mentions that he was part of a lawsuit against the makers of Fenfen, now known as Wyeth. Due to the nature of the lawsuit, only the heart-related problems could be included. However, 
He says that many of his clients also complained of neurological issues, among which included weird sleep problems, learning and memory issues, depression, and personality changes. We have previously covered Officer Waddell's testimony as to Darley's demeanor at the crime scene. Waddell testified that he had told Darley several times to help her children, but she never did. You know, Waddell, the officer who didn't radio to tell anyone that he was even going to the routine scene, who did not offer to talk to 911 to update them directly, who, in fact, testified he wasn't even sure if Darley was on the phone the whole time. BT Dubs? She was. It was recorded by 911. The officer who took no notes, forgot where he parked his car, and couldn't decide if he wanted Darley to sit down, give him her account of what happened, or help her children. Nevertheless, Waddell's testimony would help damn Darley as an evil child murderer. Detectives Patterson and Frosch interviewed Darley at the hospital. And according to the pretrial hearing, Patterson saw nothing wrong with Darley's demeanor at the time. The nurses wrote in their shift notes that she was at times hysterical, sobbing, and frightened, and at other times had a flat affect or didn't have a lot of emotions. Honestly, all that sounds completely normal for what she'd been through. One of the most striking turnarounds, however, was Wilgosh. His notes are full of comments about her sobbing. However, his actual testimony was that Darley had no emotions whatsoever. Quote, question, did you put anywhere in your notes or in the affidavit anything about Mrs. Routier having a flatness of effect? Answer, no, I did not. End quote. Darley's defense team did try to insinuate at trial that the prosecution coached the nurses on what to say but it made no headway. I realize it is a tenuous thing to suggest witness tampering with people who are supposed to be above reproach. In this case, that's the prosecution for the state of Texas, whose job is supposed to be protecting the citizens of Texas by putting away the bad guys. The problem is that Texas has an incredible history of convicting innocent people. And if you remember the Francis Newton case, Certain counties, which have an almost 100% conviction rate, and also the most death penalty cases in the entire United States. In addition, there has been press in recent years concerning prosecutorial misconduct. One case, in fact, was brought to the attention of the state of Texas by DA Greg Davis himself, the DA who prosecuted Darley. His complaint was that his boss played favorites. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. When the Routier crime occurred in 1996, conservative areas of the U.S. were in a moral peak. The Reagan administration had brought us the war on drugs and being tough on crime. Rush Limbaugh had become the voice of conservatives, and an envious Alex Jones was really starting to make a name for himself in the Lone Star State. War in the Middle East made good Christians feel attacked and ready to fight against evil. Yes, there were inverted commas there. Gangster rap was threatening to turn the nation's youth into gun-carrying cop killers. The Rodney King beating set off riots in California. And while the satanic panic was winding down in many areas of the country, states like Texas were still hanging on to the perceived threat of danger from what they deemed to be evil people. In 1991, San Antonio resident Melvin Quinney was convicted of child abuse and sentenced to 30 years. 
Also in 1991, the Austin-based Kellers were convicted of ritually abusing the children in their care. Both of these cases held additional allegations of satanic rituals, sacrifices of various limbs, and murders. Similar allegations arose against four women in 1994 San Antonio. Three of the four were gay, and their homosexuality was a main part of the justification for the accusations. The women were convicted in 1997. In 1994, Gilmer, Texas Sergeant Brown is accused of the ritual murder of a missing 17-year-old girl. There was no body, no sign of foul play, and the sergeant had been well known as one of the good ones until a few months after the disappearance. Then rumors warped his helpfulness into his trying to derail the investigation. Further spite turned him into the leader of a satanic cult. He was never put on trial, but his life was ruined. All of these cases were pushed into conviction with strict punishments, and all of these people have since been exonerated. On the flip side of this, serial killer Kenneth McDuff was recaptured in 1991 and sent to his death in November of 1998. He had won himself parole in 1989 amidst rumors of corruption and this gave him the freedom to kill a minimum of three more times before his recapture. When the Texas public found out about his release and additional murder spree, Ken McDuff became the poster child not only for the death penalty, but for making sure the guilty did not go free. In fact, in his 2000 paper on deviant behavior, Emeritus Professor Robert L. Young from the University of Texas Arlington found that capital crime juries tended to be more afraid of letting the guilty person go free than putting an innocent person on death row. If you remember back to my discussion of the jury pool and voir dire, the people of Kerr County felt that Darley had to be proven innocent, not proven guilty. The horrible thing is that it was Darley's defense that asked for the change of venue, fearing she wouldn't get a fair trial in the Dallas area. It took her out of the frying pan and stuck her straight into the fire. By Darley's trial in 1997, Texas had reached its peak on death row convictions, and DA Greg Davis was a proud proponent of handing out the death penalty to those he tried. From KWTX in Waco, I quote, Davis is said to be the most successful capital murder prosecutor in the state of Texas, end quote. In a state that loves killing people, that is really saying something. Early on in my research of the Routier case, I heard this interview with Mr. Davis. When we got into the case, what I encountered was someone uh, who was depraved, who was evil, who was selfish, who was self-focused, and who was in a state of denial, quite frankly, about what she had done in this case. And that comes from Werner Herzog's documentary, Conversations with Darley. What you cannot see in his making that statement is the gleam in his eye. And here is a clip from Toby Shook, second chair at Darley's trial. I know you're not a doctor, but how would you sum up her behavior? And describing her, how would you describe her as a person? She's a psychopath. And that clip was from the wrong man, a cry for help. In the wake of the highly publicized Susan Smith case, which showed that mothers do in fact kill their children, there was no way Darley Routier was going to get a fair trial anywhere in the conservative states, let alone Texas. 
The prosecution was on a mission, and I don't believe that bending the truth to its breaking point was going to get in the way of Greg Davis's sending Darley Routier to death row. It was the ultimate nail in Darley's coffin that set Davis after her with gusto, the infamous silly string incident. About a week after the murders, it was Devin's seventh birthday. The boys had been buried together, and the Routiers covered the grave with balloons and presents. Darley's sister Dana brought silly string because the boys loved the ridiculous stuff. Both sides of the family, Darley's and Darren's, had spent the previous eight days in such a depression that they were all going to try to make this moment a happy one. Since the murders had been big news, the media was there in force. I have heard some reports that it was Darley Key who called the news to get them to come to the celebration. But I can't imagine a news crew that would need prodding. I remember the first time I saw that. I was at home watching the news. And uh, and I just, you know, as a parent, I'm sitting there trying to conceive of this, how any, any parent in that position could possibly be doing something like that. It disgusted me. It uh, troubled me. Um, it just, again, it's just one of those things that you want to get your, wrap your mind around. You can't do it. Uh, it's inconceivable. Um, I do remember when that was played in the courtroom. And I remember the reaction of the jurors and their reactions, I think, were the same as when I had seen it for the first time. Um, disbelief. How can a mother who's lost two children be out there laughing, uh, cutting up, joking, and playing around at a gravesite when she's just lost two of her children. Uh, because, you know, again, as a parent, I hate to even think about losing a, one yes. of That was also a part of the Werner Herzog documentary. A week after the deaths, and law enforcement was already suspicious of the routiers. In fact, they had set up to surveil the gravesite with audio-video equipment in the hope of catching someone admitting to their role in the attack. The police did not get anything incriminating from the surveillance. There was about two hours worth of solemnness and sobbing on this recording all the way up to the silly string. On the stand, the lead detective, Jimmy Patterson, was counseled by the judge to plead the fifth about this recording because he hadn't actually gotten a warrant for his surveillance. Patterson pled the fifth and as such, Darley was denied the right to face her accuser. Patterson and his partner, Chris Frosch, along with Greg Davis, were sued by Darley, Key, and Darren for that wiretap. But the state of Texas decided there is no expectation of privacy at a gravesite, and since the detectives had asked the cemetery for its permission, the court ruled on the side of the police and the prosecution. The biggest WTF of all is that Darley's defense team did not show this tape at trial. The only part of that day which was shown was the newsreel. Darley spraying silly string over the boy's grave was the only part the jury saw, and they asked to see it nine times during their one-day deliberation. People have strong opinions about the silly string. May I just add here that in the Victorian period, people would have picnics and local fairs in the graveyard on top of the graves. What is considered appropriate and what isn't is, well, relative. 
As my initial training was in archaeology, you may have an indication of where I fall on the subject. If, for some reason, you have not seen the video of the silly string, it's worth a watch. It's not the most flattering appearance Starley has made on camera, and honestly, that's saying something. The one makes an insane amount of effort on her appearance. She is not the kind of woman who leaves the house, and currently herself, without her face and hair made up. Lately, I have been wondering if that actually makes her more credible, as if the only thing she could handle dealing with that day was the seventh birthday party of her murdered child. I don't know if Darley is truly vain or just tries to always put her best foot forward. There's no doubt that a woman who has taken care of her appearance will tend to get more positive attention than one who could care less, and I am a case in point for the latter. But the prosecution definitely pushes the vain narrative. She loves to be the center of attention. She wants people to look at her and to believe an image. I mean, this is, this is who you're dealing with. We saw the same thing in Kerrville when we tried the case the very first day before we started selecting the jury. I remember the complaint from the defense. It was an odd that she was angry that she had not had the opportunity to get her hair done the night before. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we looked at each other uh, as prosecutors and as did we really hear that? Her, her complaint was that she didn't get her hair done. She, she didn't look the way she wanted to look. I mean, she's very much on the physical. The outward appearance is always important to her. Um, and she's always trying to sell herself in one way or another. That was from Werner Herzog's documentary. Look, you know very damn well that appearance of the defendant is really important during a trial because people do judge others based on their looks. The defense wanting her, or Darley herself wanting, to look good for the jury is actually not as self-absorbed as he is making it out to be. Conscious or unconscious, Darley did model herself as if she were Marilyn Monroe hosting Hee Haw. Look it up, people. With her background, it's easy to believe she saw Dolly Parton as a role model. It's not like there wasn't tons of young women with a similar style in Texas in the 90s. Darley wasn't alone in her style choices. And by using the word model, I'm not necessarily implying she's fake. She might be, so that's not off the table, but we all put on an act when we go out into the world. If that were not true, we wouldn't need NSFW warnings on our incoming texts and emails. You're probably acting right now. Are you at the gym? driving your car, in the middle of a project. Where are you? Then think about how you would be different if you were in a different place and a different time. At the time of the trial, I think both Darley and her defense team thought that her girlish innocence act would be enough. After all, the prosecution didn't have any real evidence, right? And the lead on Darley's team, Doug Mulder, was known for his dramatic style and Perry Mason moments and especially for winning. By the way, I really can't hear his name without wanting to ask if his partner is named Scully. And I have used up all of our time for today. Next time, I will wrap this story up, I promise. 
If you'd like to support the show, all the contact information is in the show notes. Don't forget to like and subscribe. This tells your service that the show may have interest to other listeners. Cliff Richard will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. If you're